Let us hear God's word from Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that we, he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. All right, may God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. <clears throat> all right, well, last time we uh, began this subsection, verses 11 to 15. And uh, prior to that, of course, we saw Paul give many commands and instructions in regard to how we should live. And now, in this section, he tells us the reason why, the foundation for it. Now, usually he does it in the opposite order. Usually he gives us the theological foundation, and then he gives us some uh, practical application. But in this case, he switches his order. Uh, Paul, though, is carefully wording things. This isn't just some, if you will, abstract idea or things that only apply to us here at church. Paul is saying things in such a way to say that the truth of Christianity is uh, totally contrary to the false teaching of the first century, their religions, their philosophies, their worldviews. And uh, the true God is the one who sent Jesus to truly save us by his grace so that we will avoid the things that God hates and love the things that God says that are good. It is Jesus who appeared to save us from God's wrath and then to teach us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And so, again, this idea is not just for us in our little corner of the world, so to speak, behind our closed doors as Christians, but these truths are also a polemic against all other faith systems all other things that claim to save. All right, now, if you would uh, look at your handout, your outline, hopefully you picked one up there. And again, let's uh, just look briefly at the sentence structure. <clears throat> again, in this section, um, Paul words saying so carefully that uh, this is just helpful for us to see more easily uh, what he's getting at. And so he begins again, as we mentioned last time, with four to connect, right, verses 1 to 10 and verses 11 and following. And then the grace of God is salvation. Remember, he put those two thoughts together. <clears throat> and we're not talking about his attribute of grace, but we're talking about Christ here. It's Christ who appeared, and it is Christ who trains us. And he trains us that we would live in a godly way, and also to deny ungodliness. All right, now, <clears throat> we pick up then with this verse now, verse 13, with the next part. Notice, as we're living righteously, as we're denying ungodliness, we are also waiting or looking for, and note two things, the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So those two go together, um, and that's what we're waiting for. Then you'll see verse 14 expands on Jesus Christ and uh, what he did. And so we'll look at that, uh, Lord willing, next time. 
All right, so <clears throat> we started then last time in verse 11 with the first appearing of Christ. Okay, now we're going to talk about his second appearance. <clears throat> now verse 14 will take us back to his first appearance. You see how he's going back and forth here. Okay, so as believers, we look backward. We look back to the first coming of Christ. We rely on what he has done, but we also look forward to his return, the parousia, his coming, his appearance. Now, we are obviously in 2023, and so we're very close to 2,000 years since Christ died and rose again. And because it's been so long, it is common to hear people say things like this. He hasn't come yet, so he's not going to come. Or they will say, he must have come in some spiritual kind of way. And we should not expect him to come physically like he did the first time. Okay? And you can understand in one sense why people are saying this. Paul writes this uh, roughly 30-something years after Jesus died and rose again. We're now almost 2,000. And so you might say, well, you know, Paul thought it was going to happen soon, and obviously it hasn't. So either it's not going to happen or it happened in some spiritual way, and some will point to uh, the destruction of Jerusalem or, you know, whatever it is. But I think if Paul lived today, he would say the same thing. There is no real change of thought here on his part. True believers are going to wait for the return of Christ whenever it happens to be. Now, there are many people who will say that um, it's going to happen here anytime. And it wouldn't surprise me if Christ came very quickly, you know, just maybe in the next 10 or 20 years or something to that effect. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Because as we look at the sign of the times, there are many things that point in this direction. But who knows? Maybe it'll be another 2,000 years. Only he knows. Okay. But. <laughs> excuse me, for whatever it happens to be in terms of the time frame, we are to wait for his coming. We are to wait. And know this word to wait or to look for has the idea of expectantly waiting, eagerly waiting even. Kind of we're on our tiptoes, just waiting for it to happen. And again, because we are so many years removed from his first coming, we tend to sit back and wait. But Paul's idea here is much more eager in this way. And so let's look for it. Not just say, well, yeah, he'll come back someday. But look for it. Now, <clears throat> notice that he calls it here our blessed hope. <clears throat> our hope is in the return of Christ. Our hope is that not only will he return, but then he will defeat all of our enemies. He didn't just come to defeat sin and death and such on the cross, but he's going to come back and he's going to defeat all the enemies, all the wicked, all the wicked in Washington or Harrisburg or your you know, neighbor or co-worker that is a, a hater of Christ. He's going to punish all of them. And we look forward to that because God then will establish his righteousness. Um, we look forward to the fact that he will come and reveal all truth. Right now, truth is somewhat veiled and hidden, but all will see. They won't mock us anymore. We look forward to his return. We, we are hopeful in it because then we will be perfected. 
He will bring us to the Father. He will um, grant us eternal life as a fully glorified forever person and believer in Christ. He will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. This is what we're looking forward to. Things like this. Now, as I've said on other occasions, when we're talking about hope, we are not talking about something that is vague and wishful. We're talking about something that is certain. So we're not talking about a long shot here. We're we're expecting him to come. We just don't know when. So Pirates actually won again today, swept the, the Reds. They're on pace to win 112 games this year. Now, I think that's a long shot that they'll actually win 112 games. Hey, the Rays, I I haven't heard what they did in the last day or two, but they're on pace to win like 130 or 135 games. I mean, that's just ridiculous. No one's won more than 116. You know, it's a long shot. We hope that the Pirates will win 112 games. (laughs) Sorry, Josh, you know. But... uh, uh, but, but you get the point. That when we use the term hope, that's typically how we use it. But that's not what we mean by hope in the scriptures. All the blessings in Christ that he has secured and all the blessings that will be ours in its fullness when he comes back, they are sure, they are certain, they are guaranteed. They have begun now and uh, fully we will experience them when he comes. And so this forward look then should make us focused on holiness. You know, when I was in seminary, um, one of my uh, roommates, there was four of us, um, one of them um, and I, we we were talking about this issue. And and he basically grew up with the, the context of the end times discussions dominated everything and and you've probably run into people like this you know they're talking about the rapture or they're you know they got their charts and they got all these things about all these end times things and so forth and and it, it can be somewhat overwhelming and it was just a few years ago I was talking with someone uh, who has a different view than than we do on these things and his conclusion was simply this if we do not seek to be holy, then Christ will come back sooner. And I'm like, okay, how does that work? But, uh, you know, it's this idea that if if, um, we somehow help the promises to be fulfilled, then we'll see Christ sooner and so forth. And I'm like, I don't know how that fits, but, you know, some of the the futurists and... and, uh, um, rapture kind of people will speak that way not all of them but some of them will now i understand the sentiment that either let's not talk about it at all or you know let's see what we can do to help christ to come back sooner you know let's let's uh, in this case not do things from his perspective but paul doesn't think that way at all he is saying if our focus is on the future if we are focusing on christ coming it actually would motivate us to be godly. And remember, verses 1 to 10, be godly in these ways. Now here are the reasons why. And the reasons why are the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. This motivates us to live rightly as we wait. 
We know that he is coming. And this gives us a peace. In the face of evil, in the face of hardship, it gives us a peace. We know that at some point everything is going to be better. And so this motivates us to obey. It motivates us when the reward seems nowhere in sight. When it seems like our obedience is doing absolutely nothing. It motivates us to continue on because we know that at some point Christ will come and he will reward his people. And so we persevere. We overcome. We are faithful workers until the end. Like those five virgins who are waiting for the bridegroom. They were persevering even though he was taking forever to come. Let's turn a moment to uh, Jude, obviously chapter 1. And um, the brother of Jesus says really the same thing here. In Jude, verses 20 and 21, he says this, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Same word here for look. He uses the term mercy. Paul uses the term hope. But it's the same idea. We're looking for the fullness of the mercy of God to be upon us when Christ returns. And so build yourselves up. Pray in the Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And when things are going well, that's pretty easy to do. When things are harder, maybe not so much. But Paul is saying, okay, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, slaves, all of us, let's persevere in godliness, not just because Jesus came and did all these things for us, but because someday he's going to come back and he will reward his people. So it's kind of like when we're studying for a test or practicing for a recital or preparing for a presentation at work. We work hard as we await this future event, this future assessment even, and scrutiny. We, but we are hopeful. There's a difference here. Some people might dread a recital. <laughs> I don't think Nathaniel's dreading his recital. I think he's excited. But, you know, you can understand this. You know, you've you got this presentation to give to your boss or something like that, or you've got a final coming up, and, and you can dread it. But, you know, we're not dreading the return of Christ. We're looking forward to it. But there is going to be an assessment. There is going to be a scrutiny. We know that God will accept us because of what Jesus has done for us, yet he does expect us to study to get an A on the test, to practice so that we get perfect tens at our recital and prepare for success at work. And so the future and the certain future that we have does not lead to apathy. It does not lead to indifference. It leads actually to zeal because we know what's coming. Okay? And so uh, this is part of it. The other aspect of it is we are going to give an account for how we have lived here on earth. Let's turn a moment to 1 Corinthians and chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. All right, let's begin our reading here in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. 
according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day, right, day of judgment, will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. All right, now two things we got to make sure that we are understanding here. First of all, Paul is focusing on leaders in the church. Okay? Paul, Apollos, right? the other leaders in Corinth, these kind of ideas. But the principle applies to all believers. And so that's the first thought. The second thought is what I emphasize there in verse 15. We are not talking about heaven or hell judgment. <clears throat> Everyone that he's talking about here in this section are true believers, right? We will be saved, but our work as Christians will be evaluated, and it will go through fire. How, then, will it survive that fire? Will it be burned up, or will it shine brightly because it's precious? And so, again, there are multiple reasons why we are motivated to obey. Paul in in Titus is emphasizing, if you will, the hopeful, positive aspect. Uh, Here in 1 Corinthians, you might say it's more of the challenge for us to obey. But nonetheless, both are true. And so as we look forward to Christ's coming, this motivates us to say yes to righteous things and no to unrighteous things, as we talked about last time. It it motivates us, it encourages us to define our terms and to focus on what is true and what is right and and to have polemics against the things that are wrong. But we will give an account for how we live. And so this is part of the New Testament teaching too. Let's turn also then to Ephesians chapter 5. It it's um, important for us to remember that we are going to be coming before our God, our Master, our Lord, our King. But it's also important for us to recognize that we are coming before our husband, our friend, our father. If I refer back to uh, Sophia's hymn choice for the day, right? look fully into his wonderful face. So look at uh, Ephesians 5 here then, verse 25. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now, yes, we are declared to be holy and without blemish, but we aren't actually that yet. And so Christ is working in us now to perfect us. Our husband is doing this for us. There is this deep intimacy 
And again, I, I made reference to the, the ten virgins and such here a moment ago. Okay, that's the idea. We're, we're, we're coming to our own wedding. And so we're going to come to this very personal God, not just a master here. So as we put these thoughts together, <clears throat> holiness is motivated by God's past grace through Christ. Okay, verse 11, verse 14. But holiness is also motivated by future grace, the grace that will come when Christ comes. Our holiness is motivated by the future prospect of seeing our Savior. Holiness is motivated also by the future examination of how we have lived as believers. So why should we be holy? Well, Paul's giving us some reasons why. So again, he switched the order. Typically, he'd put verses 11 to 14 at the beginning of the chapter, and then we'd have verses 1 to 10, but this is how he's done it. So, for my friend at seminary, now, let's, let's not refrain from talking about Christ's coming. Let's talk about it accurately, biblically, but it should motivate us. It shouldn't stymie us in our efforts of holiness and the person I talked to uh, just a few years ago about these things there is no reason for us to say I'm not going to obey God and in the end we can't affect Christ coming anyway it's already planned (laughs) all right so here are a few thoughts then uh, about this uh, part of the verse and um, again extremely practical and uh, motivates us. And so, uh, just in conclusion to this thought, okay, when you are struggling, especially, <clears throat> of whether or not it's worthwhile to obey, remember, a future is coming. And God is watching. He's paying attention. And um, right, we'll see him someday. And either when we die or when he returns... But uh, we have this future focus, and it motivates us now. All right, now let's look at the second half of the verse. And um, this part of the verse raises many questions in terms of what Paul means. So again, it, it reads here, looking for the blessed hope. And the New King James says, and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the word there for glorious is actually a noun, not an adjective. So, literally, it reads, the appearing of the glory of God. Now, it is true, sometimes in the Greek, you can take a noun and make it an adjective. That, that is possible. But I don't think that it's helpful for our understanding here. Um, the appearing of the glory of God is in parallel to verse 11. Note, the appearing of the grace of God in verse 11. And so the appearance of the grace of God brings salvation. Now the appearance of the great God, the God of glory, the glory of God here, this motivates us and encourages our hope in the future. And so in verse 11, we're focusing on the first coming. Christ has come to fulfill all the terms of the covenant And his glory there was veiled, veiled in flesh, the Godhead sea, as we sing. Some people knew of the glory of Christ, 
but it was veiled. And the focus is on grace. The focus is on salvation. Jesus has come to atone for our sins. In the second coming, though, the focus is on glory. It's not that there won't be any grace. Of course there will. But the focus is on glory. And it won't just be a few people. It won't be veiled. Everybody is going to see and know when Jesus comes back. The glory of God will be manifested, and there will be no questions at all. And the second coming, of course, emphasizes judgment, not grace. Okay, judgment in a uh, vindicating sense for believers, judgment eternally for the unbeliever. And so both comings are related. They are similar, but notice how Paul arranges this differently. So again, grace, the appearance of the grace of God, and now the appearance of the glory of God. And so again, our overall point here is because of the first coming, we can be holy. Because of the second coming, we want to be and must be holy. All right, so that's the first thought here in this part of the verse. The second one, then, is this. The appearing of the glory of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The, the biggest question of translation here is where do you put our? Okay? Is it our Savior? Is it our great God? And so there's some debate over that. But the biggest question that faces us is not translation. is what does Paul mean? What does he mean by this? Is, is Paul saying that Jesus is God? Is that how we should understand this part of the verse? If so then it is only uh, one of two times that Paul says this. Let's turn a moment to Romans 9. For here is the other occurrence, and this one, I'm not sure you can actually explain it any differently. Uh, In Romans 9, verse 5, Paul says here, after listing these several things, he says, Of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. I'm not sure how you can take that to mean any other than Paul is saying that Jesus is God. Okay? But as we come back here to Titus, there is question of how we should take this. And, and some do take it to say that Paul is indicating that Jesus is God here. And it is a possibility. Um. But I don't think we have to. And, you know, Paul uses the name God 548 times in his letters. Now, you can add some from Acts and all that, too. But in his letters, 548 times. And there are only these two places that we question what he means. Every other time, he's referring to the Father. So 546 and possibly 547 times, he refers to God, and he's referring to the Father. So I think we need to see a fair amount of evidence to say that he's using the term God not to refer to the Father, but is referring to Christ. Okay? The burden of proof is basically on those who say that Jesus is God, and Paul's saying that here in this, in this verse. So, let me flesh this out here a little bit and some of the the debates and and so on. Um, If you look at chapter 1 and in verse 3, see at the end of the verse, it says, God our Savior, referring to the Father. Look at verse 4. It says, Jesus Christ our Savior. Then if you look at chapter 2, verse 10, 
It says, God our Savior, referring to the Father. And then in chapter 3, verse 4, it says, God our Savior, referring to the Father. And then in verse 6, uh, it says, uh, through Jesus Christ our Savior. So you see he uses the term Savior for both the Father and the Son. So that doesn't help us so much here in verse 13, because we could go either way, right? So let's now think of it in this way. Who appeared... Well, obviously, in the first coming, it was Jesus. The Son appeared. And from everything we see in the New Testament, the Father is not going to appear at the second coming. It's going to be Jesus. In fact, we cannot see the Father. Now, maybe when we get to heaven, we'll see some kind of uh, intense presence of light or something to that effect. But we're not going to see a form like we see one another and like we see Jesus. And so the, uh, the fact that the Father does not come, does not appear at the first or the second time, but Jesus does, um, I think is significant in our understanding here. And so let's turn to a few other passages. Uh, first of all, let's turn to John chapter 1. <clears throat> and listen to the language used here. This isn't just Paul's way of saying things. In John 1, all right, verse 14, very um, well-known verse for us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we're beheld, be, beholding Jesus, who is the glory of the Father. Okay? Let's turn then to uh, Hebrews chapter 1. This one is, I think, even more clear. In Hebrews chapter 1, notice verse 3. Hebrews 1 verse 3. Referring to Christ here, who being the brightness of his glory, right, the Father, and the express image of his person. And then he goes on and says some other things. But do you see here that Christ is the appearance of the glory of the Father? Christ is the express image of the Father. Let's look at one more. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And so here is another place where Paul uses this language. And in 2 Corinthians 4, notice... Let's begin here uh, in verse 4. Hey, we're kind of in the middle of this thought here. But uh, whose minds the God of sages blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, <clears throat> but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, without running down dozens of rabbit trails and way down some of these paths, um, here are just a few thoughts as to what um, people are discussing in terms of this question. And, uh, you know, when I came um, to this passage in my studies, I thought, hey, Paul is saying that Jesus is God. 
But after looking at this more carefully, I'm not sure that that's what he is saying here. As we come back here to Titus 2, I think it's um, uh, better for us to say that we are looking for the blessed hope. That is Christ coming. We're looking to these things. And the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the glory of him, the glory of God that will manifest itself in Christ. I think that's simply what he is saying. Jesus will come, not the Father. Jesus will come in the glory of the Father and even his own glory, but he will come in the glory of the Father. All right, so what difference does this make? Well, in one sense, um, not much, because the Father and the Son are both God. But Paul does make a distinction here between the Father and the Son, and he is saying to us that it is Christ who is coming who will shine forth for us the glory of his Father. Now, where it does become important, I think, is in our understanding of the person of Christ, in our understanding of the Trinity. And it's also important because Paul, again, is entering into polemics here. I talked about this last week. Remember in verse 11, especially, we have the the terms grace and God, salvation, and appear. And all four of those terms were used in the first century culture. But they meant other things, primarily in the context of the gods or Caesar. Well, here in this verse, we have the same thing taking place. Okay? The words for hope, glory, appearance again, God and great, Savior and hope. All those words were used in the first century and primarily were used in the Roman cult and so the worship of Caesar. And so Paul is saying it this way, yes, to challenge us to understand the Trinity and to work through those questions. Okay, and it's important for us to do that. But ultimately he is saying, okay, this is what is true. Those other things are wrong. Jesus is our true Savior. And yes, he is God, but he's been sent by the Father with the glory of God. Not Caesar, or not Pharaoh, or not any other leader who claimed to be God or sent from the gods or something like that. No, Jesus was sent from the true God. It is his appearing that gives us hope. It is his appearance that is filled with glory and greatness. And so again, this isn't just some academic study. It isn't just that, oh, Pastor Fleming's spending all this time on Romans verse 1, verses 3 and 4 again. You know, why does that really matter? Well, it matters to Paul because he's saying all these other views of salvation are not right. And we need to have the right understanding. So think about it then in this way. Who is our Caesar today? Well, ultimately, of course, we would think of President Biden, but I'm not sure too many people would call him our savior. (laughs) 
Okay, maybe he saved us from Trump, but that's about as far as it goes. Yeah. The rest of the time, we're just trying to ignore his foibles and uh, his uh, aging. Uh, but when it came to Obama, all of this language was used of Obama, wasn't it? Every one of these terms was used by someone in regard to President Obama. The term Savior, the term Great, the term God even, I heard used of Obama. His appearance, hey, he's like a rock star. I remember people saying those things. Uh, the me media made him look great and glorious. And do you remember his campaign slogan? Hope and change. Now, in his mind, the hope was that we're going to fundamentally change America into something that we're not. And... Uh, we are well on that path. But my point is, Paul's point, okay, the language used in the first century to refer to Caesar, we're doing the same things today referring to our leaders. And you'll hear people use this language of Trump too, certainly not the mainstream media, but those who like Trump, they'll use this language. You, you listen to them if you haven't. Okay. But Paul is saying, no. No politician is God. No king is God. No one is great like this. No one is our savior like this. Our eternal hope, our heavenly blessings are found in Christ. Yeah, a king or a president may come with much pomp and circumstance. But Christ is the one who provides the true hope. He is far above all rulers, all authorities, all glory of anyone here on earth. He is the true leader, true hero, whatever you want to say. And because he is our hope, look for his coming, not for any of these others. I, I don't know about you, but when I see all these rallies for the different politicians, I'm just like, why? I mean, don't you have anything better to do? <laughs> you know, but I, I just don't understand why people get so wrapped up in these various politicians on every side of the aisle. Um, because Christ ultimately is our hope. And so again, Paul is telling us how to live as Christians, how to think of Christ, and in this case, his return. But he's also wanting to us, us to engage with the culture. This is what is true. And, and this is why I'm so glad that Dale's talking about apologetics. We've done some of it before in the past. But it's good to talk about it again. We must engage, give a ready defense, okay. engage with our culture. And so define your terms. Okay. What do we mean by hope? What do we mean by Savior? What do we mean by glory? Okay. Unbelievers are going to have a very different view. Other religions are going to have a very different view. And Paul says we must filter through all those false views to the right one. And this is it. So, two primary points here this evening. The one is, okay, look for Christ's coming and be holy as you wait. The other is, let's understand rightly who Jesus is and how he is the truth and everything else is not. So, <clears throat> a few thoughts tonight. We'll look at the rest of this section, Lord willing, uh, next week. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father and God, we are thankful for uh, your word here for us. 
Lord, we are thankful for the coming of Christ and what he has accomplished already for us. But we thank you, too, that he's going to come again. And we look forward to that day. Whether it's soon or many years from now, uh, we look forward to the coming of Christ and the fulfillment of all the promises. We look forward to that day where the trumpet blares and the, the, the glory of, of, of Christ will be seen by everyone. And every mouth will be stopped and everyone will bow the knee and your people will be vindicated and all evil will be judged. We, we yearn for that day, Lord. We yearn for the, the doing away of this world of sin and a, a new world, a new heavens, a new earth. And so, Lord, as we ponder these things, may it motivate us unto obedience to be ready to be cleansed, to be purified by our husband, that we would be presented faultless and without blame at that glorious day. May it motivate us to serve you. May it uh, cause us to be circumspect, knowing that we will be examined. And our Lord, we we praise you for uh, things that are beyond our capacity as we consider who you are as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as Trinity, as, as all three being God, and it's beyond our ability to fully wrap our minds around it. And yet we confess it. We confess that you, Father, and you, Jesus, and you, O Holy Spirit, you are God. And uh, there is no one else, nothing else. Everything else is false in comparison. And so, Lord, we pray also then that you would give us the ability and the strength to, to think clearly, to uh, not just be content with our own understanding, but then to engage with the world around us and point out where their understanding is wrong, not just because we want to be right or something, um, but that they would come to understand too. And so, Lord, we pray for your, your enabling, your strength, Uh, for us in this process, in this task that you have given to us, and that we would follow in the footsteps of Paul here in this way. And so we pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.